We love to explain quantum physics and the mysteries of the universe, but the mysteries of finance, not so much. Intuit helps you demystify your finances through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Understanding standard deductions or interest rates can be very complicated and tricky with big potential consequences. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Hey, Jorge, do you ever feel bad when you eat fruit? Uh, not if it's delicious. <laughs> well, I'm not going to get into it with you right now about the banana controversy, but don't you ever think that you're like eating part of a living organism? Yeah, but it's a plant. Plants don't mind, do they? I don't know. Have you asked the plant? Have you talked to the plant? Have you talked to the plant's parents? You know, I think the day I talk to a banana is the day that I have gone bananas. <laughs> I'm just saying there's all kinds of life out there, so it's good to be open-minded about what might or might not have feelings. Um... <laughs> of PhD Comics. Hi, I'm Daniel. I'm a particle physicist and I'm an advocate for the rights of bananas. <laughs> but not any other fruit, Daniel. <laughs> You're like, apples, eat them. <laughs> no, bananas are the tip of the spear. And once we win that battle, we will extend those rights to other fruits. <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to eat, Daniel? <laughs> Where are we going to get our potassium? We're going to learn to photosynthesize eventually. We'll just all become biological solar panels. Oh, I see. Wow, I'm so glad you're a physicist because your biology is a little off. I'm glad this is not a biology podcast. I just need some biologists and some engineers and then I can start a startup, you know, to make that real. <laughs> then you need a business person and it just it never ends, Daniel. And some investors. But welcome to our podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, a production of iHeartRadio. In which we explore all the amazing and crazy things about the universe. We bring you to the forefront of scientific knowledge and scientific inquiry and scientific ignorance to show you what scientists do know and what scientists are scratching their heads about. To show you all the mystery and wonder of the universe and explain it to you in a way that hopefully makes you chuckle. Yeah, all the stuff that's making scientists confused and curious, but also all the things that make scientists crazy scratch their chins and go, hmm, 
hmm, I wonder. And one thing we love to do is think about the way the universe works as we see it and wonder if there are other ways the universe could work. Are there other kinds of planets out there? Could life be different on those planets? Could it be dramatically, weirdly different? Yeah, and because there are people out there who actually do this for a living. And not just because they have tenure and they can do whatever they want. Was that a dig? I felt like that was a dig. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? <laughs> I did wait till I had tenure to propose my photosynthesis bio startup. Oh, to the NSF or did you go with <laughs> to NIH you, man, or... to you. I just proposed it to you, you right now. <laughs> did you go to GoFundMe for that one? <laughs> That's my new Kickstarter. No, but there are people out there whose job it is to be creative and to push the boundaries. And it's not just scientists thinking about how the universe is and how the universe might be. It's also artists and writers and specifically science fiction authors. Yeah. So today on the program, we'll be talking about another science fiction novel that is out there that is has some pretty interesting ideas. And it's another episode in our series of interviews with science fiction authors where we talk to them about their book, their ideas, and how they came up with it. And I'm especially fascinated with how they built their science fiction universe. A lot of these science fiction novels are fun because the game is to figure out what are the rules in that universe? How do they work? What are the laws of physics? And what are the fascinating consequences? And that's the same game we're playing in this universe. So it's fun to sometimes shift field and work in another universe. You mean we're playing a game with God or whoever made this universe, <laughs> Daniel, to see who's smarter? I don't know who set up the puzzle, but it is a fascinating puzzle. And I, I feel like we're in a huge detective mystery. We're trying to figure out what the rules are. We've been given a few clues. And uh, that's what science is all about. That's why it's so much fun, because occasionally you do learn something fascinating. You have a flash of insight and the universe reveals something deep to you. Right, yeah. Most physicists just are like Agatha Christie, right? <laughs> We don't drink as much tea, but essentially, yes, we are trying to solve a big murder. Yeah. So today we're talking with a pretty interesting author uh, who wrote a book that sort of takes a look at intelligent life in a totally new way. Yeah. A lot of listeners write in and wonder, what could alien life be like on another planet? Could you have other weird forms of intelligence that is hard to imagine? And so this one particular writer took on that question very specifically and wondered about different surprising forms of alien intelligence. I like the tagline of her book. It's sentience takes many forms. Ooh tantalizing but you know i always wondered uh what intelligence life looks like because you know i'm still waiting to meet you never some. met yeah, any I'm still waiting <laughs> to meet some except for our listeners right the smartest right. people on the well, planet we never met them technically so <laughs> i mean i've only met you daniel and <laughs> well we met some of them on the live stream oh right? that's right yeah yeah that's right so today on the podcast we'll be talking about sci-fi universe of sue burke's Semiosis. All right, Daniel, this is a new word for me, semiosis. Uh, break it down for me. What does semiosis mean? That's the title of her book. It's the title of her book, and it reveals something about her background. Mm. She's a bit of a linguist. Mm. In her day job, she does translations. So she's fairly well known in that community for doing translations of like old Spanish texts. Like she won an award for a translation of a Spanish text from the 1600s that was the first analysis of stock markets ever written. <laughs> and um, so she's like a, a real technical grasp of Spanish and English and understanding of linguistics. And I think that motivates the title of the book, Semiosis, which is a bit of a technical word in linguistics and reflects like how to communicate through signs. Like you take a, you know, how to interpret sign language or how to use, you know, signs like road signs to communicate meaning. And so it's all about how intelligent creatures communicate to each other. Mm. Oh, it, I guess it's related to semiotics. I think I've heard 
that word before. Mm -hmm. It's not related to osmosis or mitosis or That's meiosis. Right. Or full-on mosis. This is, this is semi-osis. <laughs> I'm a big fan of little-osis. <laughs> Miniosis. Min Miniosis. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but that's pretty cool. I didn't even know they had awards in the translation world. Yeah. Does that mean you haven't won any? Uh, not yet. No. Apparently, they don't give them for translating physics into <laughs> human language. <laughs> From math to English. But, uh, yes. I'm waiting for that. I wonder what the awards are called. Is it the excuse me? <laughs> this was the Alicia Gordon Award for Word Artistry. Oh, pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. And so I had the great pleasure to read her book, Semiosis, which came out very recently. It was also nominated for some awards in the science fiction world. But it's her first science fiction novel. Mm, pretty cool. And so uh, you got to talk to her, Daniel, uh, which is pretty cool. And so later on, we'll play the interview. But first, we'll sort of talk a little bit about the book and the science in it and see how it holds up to the reading of a physicist. So, Daniel, break it down for us. What is the basic idea of the book? Well, the book is really fun because it starts out as humans are exploring the galaxy. They're leaving Earth and trying to find other planets to live on. Mm. And so you immediately are on a colony ship and you're landing very rapidly on a new planet. And there's this joy of exploration where you're like, what is this? new planet like and they very rapidly discover that this new planet has life on it and it has life that sort of seems similar to earth at first like there are plant-like structures and there are animal-like structures but they soon come to learn that these plant-like structures are pretty different from earthbound plants in one very important way mm. Okay, so uh, I guess I have a question already, which is when they go down to these planets, do they have to wear spacesuits or is it like Star Trek where they can just automatically breathe the air in those planets? They have been selective about the planets they visit and they have like the ability to scan these things far in advance so they can guess what the atmosphere is like. So on this planet, they can walk around without spacesuits. I mean, they're looking to establish colonies, wow. you know, permanent colonies. They don't want to be living under bubbles or in right. spacesuits. So they specifically went to planets that had non-toxic atmospheres. Right. And so what's the real science behind that? Is that likely that there are planets that we can where we can breathe the air? It's fascinating, actually. We're just on the cusp of the ability to study exoplanet atmospheres. It's an amazing field. And we think that it's likely that there are exoplanets and that they have atmospheres. And some of them have water vapor and carbon dioxide and stuff like this. But it's very difficult to get significant amounts of oxygen in those mm -hmm. atmospheres without some form of life without microbes for like a billion years pumping out oxygen. Right. And so it's actually very scientifically accurate that if you find a planet that has oxygen, it probably already has microbes on it. Interesting. But I guess I always wonder, like, what's the probability that we'll find a planet with an atmosphere with the exact same composition, you know, of the gases that humans need to breathe comfortably? Because isn't it, isn't it a very fine balance? Like, like if the oxygen level in our atmosphere dropped by a certain percentage, we, we would all die. Or if the carbon <laughs> dioxide level went up by a certain bit, we would all die. Isn't it really hard? It's not that. No, it's not that hard. I mean, you can, most of the atmosphere is nitrogen and that's pretty much inert to us. So you could replace that with a lot of different kinds of stuff. But you're right, there are bounds. If the oxygen level dropped too far, then we couldn't breathe the air. We can tolerate a range of oxygen, but not a huge range. I mean, Earth has a, like 21% oxygen and if it dropped into the teens you'd feel pretty sluggish and if it dropped into the single digits well then you'd die and if the carbon dioxide level was too high it would be toxic for humans but there are, certainly are bounds there but we don't know very much about the distribution of atmospheres on exoplanets we're like at the very beginning of that so it's a fair question but it's also totally not implausible to find an exoplanet with a non-toxic atmosphere what we don't know is 
if there are any exoplanets out there with microbes producing oxygen for us to breathe? That's a huge unanswered question. Oh, I see. Because uh, oxygen doesn't happen naturally in planets. It, you need something to to break out, break it out. Well, oxygen is around in the universe, but it's not nearly as abundant as hydrogen. It's there, but without microbes, it's all bound up like in carbon dioxide and stuff. So what you need for breathing is oxygen by itself. That's just mm, O2. I see. I guess there maybe there, there are a lot of planets out there. And so it's technically possible to find some that would have the same exact atmosphere as ours. Yeah. Yeah. But the microbes are sort of a sticking point mm. there. All right, so not implausible. So that's good enough here. <laughs> not implausible, no. <laughs> and so the plot is they go to a planet and it has an interesting new kind of intelligent life. Yes, and that new intelligent life is not an animal. Now, there are animals on this planet. There are like mm. weird birds and weird ground creatures and predators and all sorts of stuff. They don't seem that smart, though. But the in most intelligent creature on this planet is a plant. It's, it's one plant. Well, there are actually a variety of plants with varying intelligence. But there's one specific kind of bamboo a grove of bamboo, like an extended grove of bamboo, which turns out to be very intelligent. Oh, so it's like a complex organism. So it's not, is it one organism? Is it like one bamboo or like a, a bunch of different bamboos that talk to each other? Well, it's both. There are different groves of bamboo. Each one is its own individual. So it's not like one bamboo plant, one shoot is its own individual. It's like a whole grove communicate. They have like tangled roots the way aspen do here on earth. Mm -hmm. You can think of them as one individual. But then, you know, one grove over here has one name and then another grove on another hillside might have another one. Oh. And so and so they're sentient. Yeah. Like, um, yes, they actually have a consciousness like uh, they think. They think, they plan, they communicate, they talk to each other using pollen, for example. They can, you know, send little signals to other groves or they are sentient. They talk to each other. They send little pollen messages to each other. They have points of view. They have personalities. Uh, parts of the book take place from the point of view of this bamboo grove. What? Like, it's the first person narrator for part of the book. They speak English? They they do learn to communicate with humans. Oh, wow. How do they write or speak to us? Yeah, it's, uh, it develops slowly. Um, first, the plant on one of its stems learns to control the coloring of the stem and so it can form words on the stem of the plant so that the people can like look at it like a screen what and it develops all these new abilities to like hear what people are saying or to smell them it can control its development in this amazing way it has a real grasp of like the biochemistry of what's going on inside it so it can like do its own biological engineering like genetically it can change itself i don't know if it's genetic it didn't get down to that level of detail mm. but it has a lot of control over how it wants to grow and what capabilities it wants to produce. And it's highly intelligent and it's fascinating because the relationship between the plants and the animals on this planet is sort of inverted. Like the plants are kind of in charge and they train the animals. They will like produce a fruit the animals want if the animals do what the plants need them to do, like disperse really? their seeds or protect them from, from aggression from other plants and stuff but like how, this. how fast can they grow these fruits? Pretty quickly, yeah. And so when the... <laughs> When the humans land on this planet, they, unbeknownst to them, land right in the middle of a great war between two plants. And they end up eating the fruits from one plant and eating the fruits from another plant. And this one produces poisonous fruits and this one doesn't. And so mm. they slowly figure out that there's something complicated going on here. 
and they learn to interact with the plants. It's like, it's like landing in the middle of a flame war on Twitter or something. You're like, <laughs> what's going on? I don't, I don't understand. Yeah, and the plants um, on the planet are bewildered. You know, when these humans show up, the plants wonder like, where are their plants? You know, you can't just have animals wandering around with it without plants. It's like, you know, kids out in the street without their parents or something. Mm. Because on that planet, the plants are in charge. Well, it sounds pretty interesting, but but I guess my question is what happens in the book? Like the humans land and, and then what happens? They just the whole book is just sort of a, an exploration of this organism or is there is there some drama going on? No, there's some drama. It turns out that this planet, while it has a good atmosphere, is a real challenging planet for humans to live on mm -hmm. because there's almost no iron available on the surface. You know, we need iron for our blood. We need iron for lots of things in our body. Mm -hmm. And also iron is pretty important for our technology. But on this planet, the way the tectonics happened and the way iron settled or the amount of iron that was available when the planet formed means that there's almost no iron available on the surface. The only iron you get is from like the occasional meteorite. Mm. And so it's a real challenge. And when the humans land, they initially struggle. Well, they struggle for lots of reasons. This is just one of them. And what they learn to do is learn how to survive on this planet, essentially by forming a relationship with these intelligent plants. You know, first humans show up and they want to be in charge and they want to establish their own colony and be independent. But eventually they learn that if they want to survive, they have to build a relationship with these plants. They have to learn to work together. Mm. All right. So it's it's more sort of a, like a colonization novel. Yeah. Yeah. Except that, the you know, the colonizers. Working with the natives. <laughs> yeah. In this case, though, the natives win because by the end of the novel, the humans essentially give up and put the plants in charge. Really? At the end, they think the plants are more intelligent than them. Yeah. The plants are better at making decisions, at long-term planning. Wow. Uh, they have a better grasp of the details. Did those humans also elect a carrot as president? I feel like you're inviting me to compare politicians to fruits here, but... I'm going to avoid being political and just say that they all seem bananas to me. All right. Well, uh, let's get into the science a little bit more and whether or not it's possible from a physics point of view to have a planet like this or a plant that's intelligent from a biology point of view. And then we'll get into the interview with Sue Berg. But first, let's take a quick break. You know that feeling after you've done a deep spring clean of your house when you realize, wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like how you feel when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, while Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording all this? So it's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Personally, I've used Mint Mobile, and the calls are always so crisp and so clear. All of their plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. So it's time to ditch your overpriced wireless and go with Mint Mobile's limited time deal for three months, a premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash universe. That's mintmobile.com slash universe. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash universe. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three month plan only. Slower speeds above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. The financial universe out there can seem like a vast place full of scary mysteries and exciting possibilities, but it can also be overwhelming to navigate, especially when you're first starting out in life. It feels sometimes like just one wrong turn could send you hurtling endlessly towards a financial black hole. But don't worry, you don't have to navigate the financial universe on your own. With the right tools, you can master the financial universe and chart your course with confidence. Intuit helps you navigate the financial universe through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. 
Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit has helped a hundred million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, we're talking about the sci-fi universe of Sue Burke's novel, Semiosis. And in it, plants are intelligent. So is that, Daniel, is that even plausible, I guess? Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, I wonder, like, if you look at a neuron, you mm-hmm. wouldn't think a neuron is intelligent. Mm-hmm. But if you get mm-hmm. a whole bunch of them, a few billion, then you get a human brain. So is, it, is this kind of what's going on here with the plants? Like, if you get enough simple plants, you might get some sort of complex consciousness out of it. Yeah, and it's a really hard question because we don't really understand the rise of intelligence or what's critical about it or consciousness or all this stuff. So, of course, I turned to my local expert. My wife is a biologist, and I asked her, hey, do you think plants could ever be intelligent? Mm. I didn't tell her the context or anything, so she first said, that's ridiculous. Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> Why did she say that? Well, there's a whole history of studying plants here on Earth where people try to understand, like, do Earth plants feel pain? Do they have responses? Do they have any sort of nervous system at all? And there were some labs about 10, 15 years ago that claimed that they had evidence that plants could feel things or respond, maybe even feel pain. Mm. And uh, it's a complicated question because plants do have sophisticated reactions to stimuli, right? Yeah. There are plants that if you touch them, they will close up or a Venus flytrap will like, you know, eat an animal. They, they so. thrive, right? They, they, they seek out the sun, the water and... Mm-hmm. And if, the, if you cut them, they actually have some sort of like emergency reaction to being cut. Yeah. And so I called up another friend of mine who's actually a neuroscientist. <laughs> You're like, my wife didn't have a satisfying answer. I'm going to call somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, she's a microbiologist. So I called an actual neuroscientist who works on Drosophila, like fruit flies and how their minds work. And she said that, you know, plants don't have a central nervous system the way we understand it, but they do have these kind of mechanical reactions. Mm. You know, they do respond to stimuli. And so it's really best to think of plants sort of like on a continuum. It's not easy to say like there's a clear distinction between how plants work and how animals work all the way up to humans. Mm. It's sort of you can place them on a continuum. Right. An individual plant, I think, is is what you're saying. You can maybe think of them as, as intelligent, but not that intelligent. Yeah. But I, I think maybe what she's getting to in this novel is like if you get enough simple plants, maybe you could get consciousness out of it. Yeah. And you also only need to take another step, which is maybe these plants are not just like Earth plants. They have nervous systems. There's no reason why on another planet, plant-like organisms couldn't develop something akin to a nervous system and even maybe a brain. Mm. And in her novel, she has sort of nervous systems inside the plant roots. That's where their intelligence resides on her planet. I see. But don't these plant organisms think really slowly? Or do they think at the speed of humans? That's what I was wondering because I feel like 
all really intelligent life has brains. And I wonder if that's because of, you know, you want to bring all your neurons close together so that you can have things happen quickly. You don't have to wait for the delay as signals transmit from like one side of the hill to the other side of the hill, mm -hmm. right? That would be a slow thought there. That would be a slower thought. And so in this case, it's sort of like a distributed intelligence. Each plant is intelligent in its root, and then together they form a personality. In the novel, though, the plants are pretty responsive. So, you know, sometimes they take some time to think, but you can have a conversation back and forth with these plants. Oh, really? Huh. Well, I guess if you have enough of them, maybe, you know, it's fast that way because there are so many plants involved. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we do the same thing with our computing, right? We have big clusters of computers to answer questions. And you have part of it that's responsive to the user and other parts of it that are off thinking about deep stuff, you know, to provide information later on. Yeah. And these computer systems are very responsive. It's like the idea of the hive mind, you know, like if you have a question, just ask the internet. And... <laughs> I'm not sure the internet is that intelligent, but <laughs> but yeah, there are examples of you know starlings or you know insects that act sort of as one organism. Mm. And then I was amazed that this neuroscientist friend of mine pointed out that there are other organisms here on Earth that have nerves and sort of mental states, but no brain. Mm. There's this organism called the hydra, which has like a nerve net. So there's no core brain. It's not like all the nerves are clustered together. Mm -hmm. They're sort of distributed through the body. But, you know, it has a nervous system. It has mental states. It's very simple. But right. there's an example of sort of distributed brain that, that can actually have some intelligence. Oh, I see. It doesn't have a concentrated uh, processing. It just, it just kind of is. as a, It's like a human without a conscious brain. Yeah, or it's like if your brain was spread out through your body instead of concentrated in your skull. Oh, boy. Hmm. That would be a massive headache if you, if you get one. <laughs> All right, well, there's another piece of science here in this book uh, about low iron in the planet. Like, it, it's a planet that has very little iron. Uh, I'm just wondering if that's possible because, you know, aren't most planets sort of made of rocky iron types of metals? Yeah, it's hard to assemble a planet without some heavy metal at the core. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what really seeds the gravitational attraction is accretion of stuff. Right. Remember, solar systems start, you have a blobs of gas and dust and rock, and the heavy stuff starts to gather together. And that's why most of these planets have a heavy core. Even things like Jupiter, right, has some ice and rock at its core. And that sort of seeded the creation of the those gas giants. And so it's very unlikely to have a planet that doesn't have some iron in it down below. But the question is, can the iron be available at the surface? And that's a question of like, how quickly did the planet cool? How long did it stay hot? You know, if it stayed hot for a while, and there's time for these things to sort of settle through the liquid core, then it's possible that all the heavy stuff goes all the way down and you only get sort of lighter elements near the surface. Oh, so it's possible to have a, an iron-rich planet, but just not available for the plants and animals up top on the surface. Yeah, oh, yeah. All right, so that's also not implausible. It's not implausible. And it's sort of fascinating to imagine like a situation where the only iron you can get comes from the sky. And, you know, before humans were able to mine the earth and pull out these heavy metals, that was also the case. You know, there are examples of like Vikings that forged swords from meteorites, you know, because that was the first metal that was available. And that's pretty awesome. That's like, and you can imagine how that inspired all sorts of mythology. Right. Well, I guess my question is if these humans had star traveling power and they could go around colonizing, couldn't they just go and like grab a meteor from the nearest meteor belt or something that has a lot of iron? 
Or if they have that technology, can they drill down until they get to some iron on the core? <laughs> they didn't pack for that. Um, yeah, they didn't pack for that. They didn't bring deep mining technology. And, you know, when they land, uh, their technology very pretty rapidly degrades. And so they end up, you know, they start out as a star-faring technological civilization, but then one generation, two generations, five generations deep, they're at a much lower level. They're at a farming subsistence to, um, technology and they have to build up a local infrastructure wow. basically from scratch. They had some bad luck when they landed. Some of their key technology was lost in a crash uh, oh. from some of their shuttles. And so, but I think it's pretty typical to imagine that if you land on a planet, you're not going to be able to benefit from the heavy industry of Earth for very long. You really have to be able to build the stuff up locally. You don't think that this, you know, like history would repeat itself and they would have a Bronze Age and an Iron Age and start mining things. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, but history took a long time, right? That's thousands of years. And, and now even if you know how to do this stuff, it's not that easy. You know what they should have done is they should have brought Ryan North's How to Invent Everything book where he talks. <laughs> about yeah. how to create all of human civilization in about a hundred years. You would years. think they would bring that on a colonizing <laughs> ship to another planet. You know, a little instruction set or an encyclopedia, <laughs> but it sounds like to me they forgot. No, they brought a bunch of experts. Oh, no. The experts are always the first ones to die in a sci-fi movie. <laughs> That's right. They lost some of those, and they lost some of their more specialized technology. All right. Well, it uh, sounds really interesting. And again, if anyone is interested, the novel is called Semiosis by Sue Burke. And so, Daniel, you had a chance to talk to her and interview her about her book. I did. We had a lot of fun. All right. Well, here's the interview of Daniel with sci-fi author Sue Burke. Could you please introduce yourself for our audience? Hello, my name is Sue Burke, and I'm a writer. I'm the author of the science fiction books Semiosis and Interference, along with a bunch of other stuff and short stories. I was a journalist for quite a bit of time, and I'm also a translator from Spanish into English. Wow, that's amazing. And I read from your website, you're also a poet. Yes, I write poetry as well. Wow, wow. Quite prolific. So let me get started by sort of getting acquainted with how you view the universe and science fiction universe by asking you about sort of standard science fiction universes that exist out there and your view on them. Uh, for example, um, what's your opinion about the Star Trek teleporter? Do you think that when you step into a Star Trek teleporter, it tears you apart and kills you, reassembling you somewhere else, or that it actually translates you, moves you from one place to another? Actually, as an author, I think that that was a workaround for all of the mechanics of getting someone from hither to yon. Um, mm -hmm. It's what we call in the business hand-waving <laughs> that will tell you that this is, this is just fine. Don't look at it too hard. And that's how it works. And it just saves them a whole lot of time and effort and boring things that people wouldn't want to see. So there's realistically, it wouldn't work just because it would take too much information to build someone, mm -hmm. rebuild someone. And where would you get the parts anyway? <laughs> that's right. I mean, because there's a, a lot that goes into our body. And what if you went to a place that didn't have, I don't know, a lot of calcium? You wouldn't have mm -hmm. bones. Mm -hmm. You need a 3D body printer with all the supplies. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So then would you be willing to step into one? Say I somehow overcame all the technical obstacles and put one together. Would you be willing to use a teleporter? I would be willing to be the millionth person to do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Um, so then in other science fiction universes, what technology that you see there would you like to see become real? Well, let's see. The Star Trek communicators, of course, are now real, and that is just super cool. Also from an author, that makes sometimes plotting very difficult, because if you could talk to anybody at any 
time about anything and look things up at all times, mm-hmm. that changes a human dynamics in, in ways that are maybe too subtle for us to understand because we just live through it. Perhaps, yeah. So then let's turn to your book and the main topic of it. Um, first, congratulations. It's a wonderful book. I really enjoyed reading it. Well, thank you. I read a lot of science fiction. I'm frankly a little picky about what I read and what I like. And uh, and I found yours to be really wonderful, very creative, uh, very well executed. So congrats. Thank you. And in my reading, sort of the main intellectual concept, like the the novel idea, is coming to a planet where plants or the equivalent of plants, the sessile creatures, have a higher intelligence and have evolved these complex relationships with each other and also with the, the equivalent of animals on the planet. Is that a fair way to describe sort of the core nugget of the idea? Yes. In fact, that was the exact idea I wanted to explore. Awesome. So tell me, where did that idea come from? Did you start from having that idea and then trying to tell a story in that world? Or did you have sort of a story you wanted to tell and this is the idea you needed? Yeah. Actually, it all started when one of my houseplants attacked another houseplant and killed it. Um, it, it just grew around it and wrapped itself around the other plant till it died. Uh-huh. And then it happened to another plant and I started to get suspicious. And I began to do some research and I discovered that plants are very active, even aggressive. We don't think of that because we don't see them move usually. Although if you think about carnivorous plants, they're, they can move fast. Mm-hmm. Um, but between themselves, it's it's pretty much a constant state of war, except when they decide it's better for them to cooperate. They can do all sorts of things. And the more I researched that, the more I realized that what if they could think? Because they don't seem to think the way that we do. But if they could, then what? And that was the idea I wanted. And I want, needed to do that in science fiction because, obviously, it's counter-reality. And then what would be the way plague to explore that? So I would need a planet where they could do that because if they started doing it here on Earth, well, that wouldn't work for technical reasons. So, okay, well, set up a planet and then we'll put some humans there. And then what could happen and how could I make those events show what the plants could do and how they would react to things and build a story around that. Some of our listeners, I told them I'd be interviewing you and they asked me to ask you how that might change people's relationship with their plants, like in terms of uh, ethical questions. Like what is it like to eat the fruit of an intelligent plant? Is it all right if they're giving you consent, but otherwise not? How does that sort of change that relationship? That was built into the story because plants do sometimes want um, fruit they definitely want you to eat because they make it edible in fact they make it very attractive to you and they do that because that's one of the ways that that they spread their seeds they have many other ways too but is that a want in the sense that there is an advantage to them they have evolved to do this absolutely um or you are you attributing you know an intention a desire to the actual organism we don't know if it's an intention or not but we know that is the purpose of the fruit, mm-hmm. is to be attractive to us so that we eat it and we move their seeds. Some plants, plants and tomatoes, for example, their seeds can actually go right through our digestion. Unless we cook the tomato, it comes out at the other end and ready to go. Nicely fertilized. Yes. Um, and that happens with other things. And wheat grows a whole lot of seeds. Because they know some of them will be eaten, but not all of them will be eaten because there's just too many. That's why they make 
make so many. And that's true of other grains too. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things is that human beings discovered this and we start growing wheat fields. And there's a, a kind of a grain called rye. Rye just started moving into those fields because it looked like a really good way to live because you got lots of care and they didn't all of them. And then you planted more seeds. Mm -hmm. And so rye volunteered to become domesticated because <laughs> that was a good way to work. Um, and you can see now oak trees, for example, they, they just do not cooperate at mm. all. It's a whole other subject, but yeah, oak trees just don't behave well. Apple trees, on the other hand, apple trees clearly thought it was a good idea. They were quite willing to do that. Think about marijuana and how we can breed that into little things that basically do nothing but grow flowers and sap. And they're very willing to do that too, because it, it works for them because they keep getting replanted. Mm -hmm. So some plants want to do it, some plants don't. They have all sorts of other ways to do that. And some of it is actually very abusive to animals. So it seems to me like this concept of plants having intention and intelligence, that you see it as sort of as a natural extension of the sort of continuum of plant relationships to animals now, not something totally distinct, but just sort of like an exaggeration or an extension of, of what's happening in our universe. Oh yeah, we grew up with each other and we depend on each other. And if you could put that where, where we would all have to think about that, both them and us, then, as you say, it does cause ethical questions, which I tried to explore in the novel. Mm -hmm. But it also makes it more clear that that's what we're doing here. We don't think about it enough, I think. If, if you talk to ecologists and, and especially farming ecologists, there's we're doing some things that are very scary and wrong and they're going to come back to get us. But that relationship exists here. We just don't think about it very hard. I mean, have you thought about your tomato is talking to you when it turns red? Well, it is, but we're just so used to that, that we don't realize that we are in communication. And some people talk to their tomatoes, right? People talk to their plants. Oh, yeah. I don't know if they listen, but I do that too. <laughs> Well, I talk to my children and I don't know if they listen, but I do it anyway. Well, then let me ask you this. Do you imagine that the universe that you described could exist, that those kinds of plants could exist here in our universe? I mean, do you imagine that there could be an alien planet out there in which plants do develop intelligence? Do you think there would need to be a different set of laws of physics or that there's some scientific principle that, that needs to be sort of hand-waved? No, they could do that now. And in fact, there's some debate over whether they do that here. One of the things is that beyond, you know, tomatoes turning red and fruit showing that you were that it's ripe, how much do they really need to talk to us about? We know they communicate with each other a lot, but they might not have that much to say to us. So, well, hey, they do communicate here with each other. Mm -hmm. um, we haven't deciphered that, but we know, for example, whales communicate with each other and we're not sure what they're saying either just because we can't break that code. It could very easily happen somewhere in the universe right now, the way I wrote about it. Give us another million years for, for the plants to, to keep making changes, and perhaps we could enter into a, a more direct relationship with them. And so the plants in your novel, do they have like a central nervous system? What is the sort of implementation, the strata on which this intelligence is built? Yeah, they have a central nervous system, which helps them to communicate with us more like we communicate with each other. There is a, um, a neurobotanist named Mancuso, and he says that the way that plants work, because they don't have a central nervous system, but they work, if you can imagine a flock of starlings and how they all can fly sort of in the same direction, mm -hmm. 
um, and in, in giant flocks, the way they do that is they all just look out at the birds that are closest to them and follow them. And then in a, a aggregate, it looks like they're one giant thing. Right. And he says that it works with with plants that same way as that each cell looks what's going on with the cells around it, adjusts to that. And in that way, plants can do things that look very complex and they are very complex, but they can do it without an, a central nervous system. And so then the plants in your novel, do they have a, a nervous system for communication, but it's distributed through the plant or is there some sort of like hub, like a brain like thing in the plants that you, de- that you described? Yeah. Their brains are in their roots, which might not be, well, we know that their, their roots do a whole lot of things here too. And, and I want to point out that plants have personalities. They make different decisions because they have to make decisions. When they decide to put out their leaves in spring is a life or death decision. If they get that wrong and then the weather gets screwed up, mm-hmm. they can wipe out a whole growing season and that would be fatal. And different trees, even of the same species, even growing next to each other, will sometimes decide to do things differently. One tree will pick one day and the next tree next to it will pick the next day. Why do they do that? How do they do that? Well, they make a whole bunch of choices inside of themselves. Do you think some trees like are procrastinators and they just don't get around to it? Um, Procrastinators, some seem to be very cautious. They've been described as cautious by botanists. Some trees are willing to take a lot more risks. Um, And this is true of other plants as well. It's hard for us to notice because they move so slow and unless you you're like like watching them like a scientist every hour you can't see what they're doing mm-hmm. because we have other things to worry about but different plants make different decisions that are very important and we can kind of guess that that some of this there's natural variation between them because they have to adjust to changing conditions all the time so they try all sorts of different things and different individuals will be doing things in a different way. They certainly have their own individual personalities. That's right. Mm -hmm. We're having a lot of fun talking to Sue Burke, but let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with more. The financial universe out there can seem like a vast place full of scary mysteries and exciting possibilities, but it can also be overwhelming to navigate, especially when you're first starting out in life. It feels sometimes like just one wrong turn could send you hurtling endlessly towards a financial black hole. But don't worry, you don't have to navigate the financial universe on your own. With the right tools, you can master the financial universe and chart your course with confidence. Intuit helps you navigate the financial universe through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit has helped a hundred million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time off to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life to immerse myself in natural beauty and have a unique experience. But you don't have to leave the United States to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. People from Puerto Rico are called Boricuas, but it's not just a name. It's a spirit, a flavor, a rhythm that you can only find in one place on Earth. 
Puerto Rico. It's embodied by these proud, passionate people, and you'll feel it in every part of the island. When you bask in the warmth of the beaches, when you taste the love in the food, when you embrace the call of adventure, you'll find the Boricua spirit in yourself as well. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. You can forget where you came from and embrace where you are in Puerto Rico because your visit ends, but the stories last forever. No passport is required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right, it's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, we're back with my interview with Sue Burke, science fiction author of Semiosis. So let me ask you about the sort of spot that you put these folks in, because you created this wonderful universe, you introduced the humans to these intelligent plants, and then you gave them some hard problems to solve. And one of the challenges in your universe is that the planet they land on has a very low iron content, mm -hmm. which of course iron is something we need to survive. Tell me about how you made that choice and whether you did some sort of like science consulting to talk to folks. No, I started, I, because, okay, I'm going to put them on another planet. Well, what do we know about other planets? And I began to do research into that and in books and scientists put things out. One of the things I learned is that when plants, planets are formed, um, they all pretty much seem to be the iron nickel sort of core that we have. But on our planet, iron, quite a bit of it has stayed on the surface. It's very easy to find iron here. It's easy to find iron on Mars. But if, a planet was formed and just a few little things went differently, there wouldn't be iron on the surface. And when I read that, that told that that inspired a, a, an understanding of a conflict that was going to happen because plants need iron. We think that animals need iron and we do, mm -hmm. um, but plants also need iron for some of the chemicals to do photosynthesis. So plants need iron. Animals have iron. Plants already eat animals when it's, uh, when they need to, if they can't get enough nitrogen in their localized environment, they'll turn carnivorous and start to eat us. So if they need iron and we have iron, and if they can think, they'll start to think of ways to get the iron out of us, which is a whole... And so we become fruits. Yes, we, we become food for them, which is a, a whole series of other ethical concerns that appear in the novel very quickly. Right, I thought that was uh, really fun and uh, and fascinating. And uh, it's interesting to imagine how a culture would survive with a very small amount of iron. You know, they'd basically be harvesting meteorites and, uh, and recycling as much as they could. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was also really interested in how you got these sentient beings to work together. Because not only did they need to work together and to communicate, but you had them actually come to a common understanding, like to actually understand each other. 
to develop relationships and friendships. Do you think that's necessary? Um, that's basically how a society works, how a civilization works among humans. We're so close to what we do that we don't always see it, but we work out of human connections, interconnections with different people. We have large organizations that allow us to work under it. So we understand how we have agreements built into how we relate to each other. We are naturally social beings, human beings, mm -hmm. just as, as other primates are. But here's the thing. Plants are social beings, too. We know trees like to be around other trees, like itself, and, the, and they communicate, as, as we've noticed. They send messages through their roots. They send messages through the air with chemicals. Mm -hmm. And a tree that is among other trees like it will be healthier and live longer than a tree that is alone. And that is also true of human beings. If you put a human being in solitary confinement, they suffer terribly, physically and mentally. Mm -hmm. So that you have two groups of social beings that come together and they're going to behave as, as social beings and set up social constructs and all of the Hobbes and, and other sorts of political philosophers and their thoughts about how we do that remain true. The fact that it's two different species and such different species puts in some some problems, but also some solutions. And in your book, you try to use beauty and sort of appreciation, you know, joy to sort of connect our experience with theirs. Like if we could enjoy the same music, then we had something in common. And as I'm sure you know, some of the probes that we've sent out into interstellar space have had samples of human music on them. Uh, do you think that that will be well received? Do you think if there are aliens out there that receive that probe or hear our broadcasts that they'll like, you know, thump along to our music and be like, hey, these are folks we can understand? They might, they might not. Again, this is a, a, a theme that is explored by many writers in, in Fruitfully and would be a lot of fun. It is, it is a lot of fun. How much do we recognize? How much do we have in common? If a rock was alive, and they could be, the problem is they would be so slow. They could make music that we could never hear because <laughs> even over generations, we don't live long enough. Right. If they're too fast, would we hear them? So the question you ask is, is maybe, and the fun is when would we and when would we not and why? Or if we hear something and we know it's music, even if it sounds horrible to us and we can't stand it, it's black, it's fingernails on a blackboard, but we know they're making music. Yeah. Would that be enough? Yeah, they're trying. That we have in common. Well, I hope that one day we get answers to those questions. Uh, there are questions that I'm very curious about as well. So I was just glad in your book that to see those humans get to meet aliens and connect with them on this deep level, work together and, and, uh, and experience each other's joy. That was wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, great. So, um, thanks very much. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure for me too. Take care. Stay safe. As you can see, no question is too nerdy for me. All right. Pretty interesting conversation there about plants and intelligence and my favorite procrastination. <laughs> yeah, I did that one for you. I asked her if she thought plants procrastinate. And, you know, you can hear in her voice that she really thinks that plants here on Earth are part of a sort of a continuum of communication and therefore some 
effectively some kind of intelligence, you know? Tomatoes talk to you by changing color and plants communicate to you by... Wait, what? Tomatoes talk to me? <laughs> Tomatoes tell you when they're ripe, right? By changing color. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah. I see. They're training me, kind of. Yes. what you're saying. Exactly. Uh-huh. Just the way the plants in her novel train their animals to do something or not do something. Uh-huh. Apple trees, you know, induce you to eat their fruit by making them tasty and all sorts of stuff. And right. there's a question about whether you could like attribute any intention to the apple tree or if it's a, essentially a dumb biological machine. But she's definitely right that they communicate. Right. And at the end, aren't we all dumb biological machines? <laughs> yeah, that's a deep question about the universe. I certainly don't have the answer uh, to. But she's very pro-plant, I guess. She's really into nature and plants. Yeah. I'm not sure where she would come down on, you know, whether bananas have rights. Mm. I didn't feel like it was respectful to ask her that question. I just assumed the bananas are in charge. So <laughs> Then why are you eating them and they're not eating you? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm, I'm, well, I'm, I'm just doing their bidding. Is, is oh, how see. I see it. Yeah. This is part of the long game for bananas. Yeah. <laughs> but I was also impressed. She really thought about the science of her book. She was not trying to create something in a completely alien made up universe. She was mm-hmm. just imagining how life could be different on another planet. You know, she looked at the way things work here and she just tweaked it a little bit she's like let's exaggerate this element of it or play out this thing here on earth which she didn't think was widely enough appreciated all right well pretty cool well i guess it kind of makes you think about um what intelligence could be like in other planets right because it doesn't necessarily have to be like we have it here on earth you know like we talked about last time a lot of star trek episodes and movies like Star Wars, they imagine life pretty similar to us with like, you know, four limbs, five fingers. But really, I mean, life out there could take on any form. It could be like sentient clouds or blobs of silicone, right? That's right. And as much as I say I'd like to talk to aliens, there's a good chance that aliens out there have an intelligence, if they are out there and they are intelligent, that their intelligence would be very difficult for us to understand. You know, a key element in her book is that these humans and these plants find a commonality. They find a way to talk to each other. They have things in common. They appreciate things. They both want to survive. They they appreciate beauty or something. Mm. And so it's a question of like, will those aliens be able to understand that we are intelligent? Can they see intelligence in us? Right. Or they whether they think about intelligence the same way we do. Yeah. They might see it as uh, something totally different. That's right. And you know, we famously send out signals into space and like on one of the Voyager probes, for example, we put some music and I always wonder, like, aliens get that. Are they even going to understand that it's music? And if they do, mm-hmm. is it going to make them like us less or more? Or they, <laughs> right. You know, is that the kind of thing that we'd have in common with aliens? Could you sound like static to them? Or- <laughs> You know, an annoying uh, sound. <laughs> yeah, it could yeah. sound like the annoying music their kids listen to. And then they're like, ugh, I'm going to skip that planet entirely. Obviously, we should be sending out tomatoes. <laughs> and bananas. Just we- in case. You never know. <laughs> we really have no idea what the forms of intelligence are. And so even a book like this, where it seems pretty weird to imagine intelligent plants, that's really not very far from what's happening on Earth compared to what could really be out there. Yeah, who knows, right? Who knows? And also, this book reminded me of one of my favorite comics, Jack Handy, one of his deep thoughts, which is, if trees could scream, would we be so cavalier about cutting them down? We might, if they screamed all the time for no good reason. (laughs) Yeah, that's a classic for sure. (laughs) Do you think maybe she had a little bit of that in her uh, motivation? You know, for us to think a little bit differently about plants and not be so cavalier about cutting them down or eating them. Yeah, I think she's definitely pro-plant. But I think also her goal is just to make us think about our intelligence and the context of our lives and to remember that things out there in the universe could really be very different 
from the way they are here on Earth. Yeah, and they probably are. And let's hope they are because... It's a big universe. It would be pretty disappointing if we met aliens and they were just like humans and they had only figured out what we have figured out and so we basically learned nothing from them. <laughs> and they're like, we thought you guys had the answers to everything. <laughs> what have you been doing all these years? Come on. I'm going to write the most boring, disappointing science fiction novel ever. In our version of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the answer is 37. <laughs> What's your answer? <laughs> All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode and we hope you check out Sue Berg's sci-fi novel, Semiosis. I thoroughly enjoyed it and I think you'd like it as well. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Thanks for listening. And remember that Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Need an easy button to feed your baby? Baby Bretza's Formula Pro Advanced makes a perfectly mixed warm formula bottle automatically at the push of a button. No air bubbles, no fuss. Literally, choose your temp, select your ounces, push start, and you're done. Works with virtually all formulas and bottles. Say goodbye to the 3 a.m. feeding chaos and hello to this revolutionary, stress-free solution. Raising a baby is hard enough. Let Baby Bretza make feeding a breeze. Get your Formula Pro Advanced at babybretza.com.